Welcome to School of Everything Else. Genlock, Season 1. And rather than just play you a trailer at this point, I'm going to play you the intro sequence, because this tune, Belgrade by Battle Tapes, will just stick in your head. I'll play you a long version at the end, but this song, I believe the kids say, slaps. This episode was commissioned by David Schuttenhelm, and I was initially worried that it would invoke the anime clause, wherein we don't cover anime because it incurs a flood of suggestions from eager anime fans for us to cover enormous lengthy TV shows or films that are impenetrable to us, and we hate saying sorry, but no. And we have to, in order to be able to focus on the enormous amount of movies we already juggle every year. We just don't have time to do Mm. lengthy, lengthy things. We barely have time to get these movies watched for the show. Mm. Also, long form is not our medium. Yeah. For the most part. But it's not exactly an anime. It's an anime-style American production like Avatar, though it does, in fact, incur a similar issue, which is anime fans suggesting a slew of anime-style animated series that aren't actually animes. I think it was about five seconds after I announced we were doing this when someone suggested we look at RWBY. Seven seasons, 80 episodes. I'm not joking. For the love of God, no. (laughs) We're doing this one because Michael B. Jordan and David Tennant are in it, which got my interest. And because I watched the first episode on YouTube and figured we can work with this. And because of the very polite request and offer of a princely sum. In the end, I worked out that the whole season was just three hours and 20 minutes long, which is like a very long movie or two shortish ones. So I accepted $200, a little bit more than our standard 150 Genlock is an animated web series all about mech suits and young people, same as about 19% of all anime. But it's produced by Rooster Teeth Productions, the folks behind Red vs. Blue. And many years ago, I used to really like Red vs. Blue, a web series created using Machinima, which in this case meant using the multiplayer of the original Halo as a theatre to tell a story about two opposing teams of loser space marines. It got better and better as the seasons went on, and tighter, 
and eventually started getting really impressive in terms of complexity of storyline, in terms of unexpectedly touching drama that was in its core, and in terms of elaborate action sequences. I was a big lover of their material and the snappy back and forth dialogue and mimetic humor, the fun, distinct original characters often differentiated visually only by the color of their Mjolnir Spartan armor. I had a bunch of t-shirts, my favorite being the Burgundy Simmons one, which even though Simmons is not my favorite character, just Burgundy looked right. Mm. I still have my Tex Freelancer t-shirt. Which I once made a travel documentary on while sporting and Sharon still wears her Tex Freelancer (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. She does. So, no, that that speaks highly of their build quality of merchandise, if Mm, nothing else. It does. Also that you still love Tex. I actually managed to interview Bernie Burns and Jeff Ramsey, who play Church and Griff on that show, respectively, as well as being key production creators. Notably, Burns shows up as exec producer on Genlock, and this was back in 2009 on Digital Cowboys with Tony Atkins after we met them at PAX that year and exchanged business cards. It was a wonderful interview, and it made for a fascinating show. I believe it's on the School of Everything Else archive, and you can find it there. 3,000 people watched the first episode, and about 300,000 showed up to watch the second episode. <laughs> Whoa. That was, wow. So is that just word of mouth? Or? Yeah. Yeah. That was the craziest thing to us, was we, I mean, we didn't have anyone to tell, you know? It just traveled over the internet. That was before social networks. So each person you know, told 1,000 friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One person told 300,000 friends. All right. Uh, In case folks don't know about this, we have a School of Movies archive with all our old movie episodes and a School of Everything Else archive for everything that we did that wasn't a movie. Those are both available on iTunes or wherever else you find podcasts. Then I blew it. In my eagerness to connect, I drew their attention to an adult swim cartoon, The Brack Show, and noted the similarities between Brack's manner of speech and their character of Caboose, sometimes, who wasn't inspired by Brack. They took this badly like I was accusing them of plagiarism, and they said they wouldn't be promoting the interview. And I was devastated. Not because that was potentially a huge draw for new audiences, but because I had upset a pair of my heroes. And from something as stupid as trying to impress them with the crazed parallels I can come up with, that flung me into a pit of depression. And while I wrote them a long, very apologetic email, and they did finally relent and forgive me of my youthful exuberance, I had turned a corner... I had done something genuinely regrettable and unprofessional, and I had to learn from my grave miscalculation of approach. I'd imagine they forgot the incident almost immediately afterwards, but it haunts me to this day, which has led me to not exactly following Rooster Teeth for the decade since then. I've been aware they were still going and, and that they branched out into more dramatic fare, indie tech-themed movies and animations that they produced themselves rather than utilising game mechanics. Despite my sad, regrettable, and, let's face it, brief history with them, I am impressed and proud of their achievements. The concept of Genlock is actually pretty simple, though the language sounds complicated. Mech suits, Jaegers, Gundams, Evangelions, what have you. Only, rather than a human pilot, the digitized brain of a human controls. The catch is, the brain belongs in the first case to someone who has died, and Michael B. Jordan plays a character named Chase, who falls in battle defending New York, only to be reborn later on as this ephemeral distilled consciousness, causing relief, alarm, and drama with his friends who have been grieving Chase since his apparent death. And while part of his body remains functional, suspended in a bacta tank, Chase has effectively become a ghost in the machine. 
The project recruits a bunch of new pilots who can upload their consciousness avatar style. That's James Cameron, not the airbender. And they are pitched in battle against an invading force called the Union. Now, the animation's not dissimilar to The Dragon Prince, which, by the way, was also requested for commission. But I declined that because so far we've got seasons one and two. Three is very close by. It might already be out by this point. Um, But I think we're going to wait to see what happens. Either we'll find a point where we really want to talk about what has happened so far, or it will finish and we can cover it then. Suffice to say, The Dragon Prince is fantastic, especially with the improvements to animation from season one to two. Both shows are made like the 2003 Sony's new Spider-Man cartoon, which everyone has forgotten, which is why don't call something new. It's <laughs> that show featured Neil Patrick Harris as Peter Parker, and it sort of it acted as a sort of sequel series to Sam Raimi's original Spider-Man One. That is until it was cancelled on a weird cliffhanger that left a lovable new character stuck in a coma. I wrote that before the end of Genlock season one. <laughs> The animation is effectively 3D modeling, but uh, with what seems like a kind of cell-shaded anime overlay. And both Dragon Prince, especially Season 2 onwards, and Genlock have made amazing advances in how to play with this style since its inception in the early 2000s. Now, we have to go into spoilers on this episode because otherwise we will never be able to discuss the characters or plot progression in any real depth, something I eternally regret not doing on our Green Lantern show. The short-lived, wonderful TV series deserved more talk, the movie, less. (laughs) So like Voltron, this is about a group of kids in colourful tech suits training to be better at piloting their complex mechs. Their differing outlooks on life creating some great interactions and conflicts. Let's discuss Chase first because uh, I said to the, that he was dead, and technically he's not. He's just mostly dead, mm. and there's a lot of a lot of looking into the idea of a digitized brain and when, like this, effectively making you alive, even though you are incorporeal and disconnected from your body, whether you jump into the body or back out to the mech or into a hologram. So, well, the the point of Chase is like the framework. He's the initial character who gets um, tested for Genlock compatibility, and it's there's a series of coincidences that allow uh, the science team behind Genlock to use him as their first real test subject. So the idea behind this this sort of fighting. Oh, force, side note, by the way. 
we recommend that you see Genlock. There's a variety of ways of seeing it. The Blu-ray, which we did, is, was £25, which I think is quite high for effectively what is a long movie. But there are other ways to see it. There are other different services. You can subscribe on Rooster Teeth. and there's, We recommend you watch this. Mm. No, let's carry on. Okay. So there are multiple themes in this series which get explored through the various things that are happening. And in the course of Julian Chase's story, we're looking at things like uh, how ethical it is for the company you work for to take extensive information about you and what they are allowed to do with that. Um, whether the preservation of a physical form in maybe not this day and age, but in a day and age that may come not too long from now, uh, is what's life? What form does life take? Does it require a substantial input of of organic uh, matter in order for it to be considered life? Um, Chase is a pilot who is killed inverted commas in a battle uh, he in the first falls episode in battle, yeah, yeah. Uh, his his plane is shot down and he's later found to have been sustained by some nanobots that were flooding the city at the time so although his body is very severely damaged he is still alive when his team well not his personal team but his side find him His body is preserved and he is alive in it, but he can't move. He has to be kept in effectively a bacta tank. And they find a way to... I love that we both said bacta tank on that. Yeah. It's a Star Wars thing. (laughs) Um, They find a way to uh, turn his neural patterns into digital code, which they can then upload into a computer, which then controls the... Mech, which are called, they're called holons in this, aren't holons, they? Yeah. Holons. Uh, but Chase's mind can be uh, downloaded back into his physical body. And when people actually go down into the room where his tank is contained, he's awake, he's talking, he's, you know, his, his physical body is still functional to the extent that it's, it, he breathes, he talks, he interacts. He, though he is a head, a torso, and two partial arms. Yeah. The, the point being that what he's lost really is it's just a, an extreme form of, of disability. He's lost mobility yeah. and um, he can't survive without this life support, but he's still there. He is very much still alive at the beginning of the show. As his story progresses, there are a lot of uh, philosophical questions that come into being about what is it that makes him who he is? Uh, there's a storyline where it transpires that he's been in the in the process of uploading and downloading him between holon and human body. They have copied his neural patterns so that there are two versions of him effectively. Effectively making a backup of his brain. Precisely. And the original is then stolen. So the version that we've got to know is actually the copy. the copy. But it still has all of the same patterns. It still has the same essence as him. And, and one believes of the, himself to be the original. Absolutely. Well, up to that point, he believes himself to be the original. But one thing that that really grabbed me about Genlock that 
I've discussed before when we've talked about films where they look at clones, uh, whether whether a clone is a human, whether it has a soul, whether it should be treated as a person. Should we treat robots uh, well? Yeah, absolutely. So, and and from clones, then extending to artificial intelligence, and um, you know, if we've created this thing, should we be responsible? Do we have to be responsible for it? Do we have to treat it ethically? Do we have to treat it like a human being? And one of the things I absolutely fucking loved. Excuse the swearing so early into the show. (laughs) But one of the things... Oh, like Kelly. <laughs> I fucking loved it. Cammy. Cammy. Sorry. Um, one of the things that I really loved about Genlock is how swiftly they resolve those questions. Is Chase still himself, even though technically he is the copied version of himself? Yes. It's yes, the, he absolutely is. It's the polar opposite of every <laughs> single one of those trailers where they say at the end, after all of the action... I know what you are. Boom. Yeah. You come to see this film. It's like, oh my God, what are they? They're a clone or a robot or, you know, and, and that thus means that, you know, are they really real? I don't know. We're going to be inconclusive in yeah. our findings in this film. That annoys the piss out of me. Yeah. But all those adverts, uh, the, the trailers for Gemini, Gemini Man, Man, I'm like, okay, so he's Will Smith's son. Basically, yeah. Uh, are we going to? Is that I, how we're going to conduct? I this? feel like Dan Olson, who said a lot about uh, um, uh, Gemini Man, was was exactly on that. He was like, okay, so um, they they don't have the same memories. They they do have the same genetic template, but effectively, they both lived lives. Mm, that's this twins. is this is a man being hunted by his son who went through the same kind of shitty assassin training as him. Yeah. And it sounds like from the sound they they don't explore it in Gemini Man at all, and it's really really boring. Yeah. It, and so it's like, you know, what if they knew what we both are? And it's like, oh, is that going to be explored? No. What we both are, killers. Yeah. Here's here's the bottom line, though. Is it a separate intelligence? Is it capable of independent cognition? Oh, look, I'm looking at... Then a- it's... What it is, in the very literal sense, is irrelevant. You treat it like a fucking human. The problem is that a lot of the people asking these questions, how they treat humans is not always fantastic. I'm looking at a picture of Kay right now. It's from Blade Runner 2049. It's my iPad wallpaper. It's the bit in the snow at the end. Mm, Indeed. Um, Must have been on my mind. But the... uh, So, yeah, so a lot of the... um, the ghost in the shell kind of concepts and philosophies that are explored here are given most of their exploration through Chase because he's the one who has the uh, the the issue of does my body make me me? Mm. Does my physical organic brain make me me? Or is it the electrical patterns that um, contribute to how I think and how I do things make me me and if that's the case if someone has an exact replica of those patterns are they also me I mean there's a lot of when you boil it down to brass tacks there is a lot of I think therefore I am in this which again I, I really love that that simplification of the the philosophical theories that you can tie yourself in knots with if you let it happen. But the bottom line is, if somebody can think, if somebody is capable of that that cognitive um, uh, awareness mm. on whatever level, you treat them like a fucking human. I don't care if they're made of copper wiring. I don't care if they're made of duplicated DNA. You treat them like a human. Agreed. There are various um, other pieces of media which uh, this remind. But Chase's story within this reminded me of 
uh, as we went along. First off, the fact that when we finally get to see uh, Chase's body, he's like sort of suspended and is mostly just a torso with a bit of arms. Mm. I thought, okay, so that's Darth Vader, who spends his entire existence as Darth Vader pissed off that he's not Anakin Skywalker with his bodacious bod. Whereas Chase gets over the fact, well, we, we get like he doesn't, Look down at himself. I'm such a monster. At you, any point, there's, there is a storyline that is done so often to death, and I was so refreshed that they didn't do it. When he reconnects with Miranda, who was his girlfriend mm. before the accident, um, or before the battle, rather. played by Dakota Fanning. Yes, and she's great. She's she fantastic. is great. Yeah. Um, when they meet back up again, there is not a whole soul-searching conversation about you deserve more than I can give you because I don't have legs. Yeah. Because that would be ridiculous. That's coded to disability. Yeah, and what, he's he's basically straight in there with, well, I'm here, I'm me, yeah, I'm not me. saying you have to have me back by any means. I understand that your life has gone on. There is Maybe we could go out for coffee sometime. The thing that made me go, okay, we're doing this, was the very last shot in uh, episode one. Mm. Uh, Miranda has been mourning his death for four years and then she goes into this uh, presentation by David Tennant Doctor Who as uh, Doctor Weller who says you know we've got this incredible new technology you know we've got someone very special for you to see it's a way better scene than I'm putting it out and so (laughs) it's it's David Tennant crowded auditorium (laughs) of pilots and soldiers all just standing around and then uh, Chase appears on stage or no Chase walks out on stage Mm. and he like you cut to Miranda's face and she's aghast and staring at him like she's seen a ghost and you know he's looking at all of the soldiers and then he gives this tiny almost imperceptible nod effectively saying yeah it's me to her mm. and then just as the credits are about to roll everyone else just disappears into blackness and it's just the two of them standing there yeah it's a lovely really superbly directed moment mm. of this sudden intimacy between two people that, in the case of one of them, thought they were never going to be around that person again. Yeah, yeah. And the, when you say that he walks out on stage, of course, at that point, it's a, a hologram yeah. version of himself. Um, one of the other things that they look at, which I thoroughly enjoyed, was the exploration of how many different identities a person can carry and project of themselves and the, and individual characters have uh, their own ways of exploring this, which we will go into yeah. when we look at the characters. There's a separately. whole thing on characters we're going to go into. But the whole concept of the the Genlock pilots having their physical body, whatever form that takes, their holon, which is their big Shell. multi-story. Uh, um, mech suit, yeah, which themselves are adapted and added to and changed over the course of the show. Uh, And then they have a digital Digital uh, projection of themselves, which in Chase's case is something that is actually projected into the quote-unquote real world so that it can interact with other people um, while his tank remains in the basement. Mm. Uh, There's the digital version of themselves that they use when they go into a a gaming platform, um, which they can obviously play around with and and modify to whatever degree they want. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's literally just like a virtual reality world. And then there's almost like an internal digital version of themselves, which is often more... Uh, visually closer to their 
physical self, mm. but that they use to connect with each other in an environment that's like the drift in Pacific Rim. Mm -hmm. But they have a degree of control over that as well. So again, they can project that in, in various different ways. And it felt to me, there were very strong overtones of it being post-Animatrix. Yeah, I, I was thinking Matrix. I was thinking, thinking while watching it, you know, when they reboot the Matrix movies, they're going to have to make them so fucking like complex in terms of what they're handling, in terms of existence and what it means to be you, yeah. that it leaves the original Matrix in terms of head-scratching way behind. Absolutely, but it really reinforced for me uh, the, the expanded world that the Matrix had the potential to become, mm. and and the concept that the Wachowskis provided this base framework that we have, that this is kind of the evolution of that. And evolution is another thing that we're going to be discussing in evolution. detail, I would imagine. Like the um, dinosaur. But that, that this, to me, this is the natural progression of, of what the film, The Matrix, led into with the Animatrix, and that has then expanded into this. So that would be my kind of sequential mm way of linking those together. I can almost guarantee the Wachowskis fucking love this show. I really hope so. <laughs> still, haven't, still haven't seen Sense8, but uh, we probably should at some yeah, point. Yeah, I, I sneakily suspect it's their wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so other people that uh, Chase reminded me of, or at least Chase's situation, Robocop, more so even than the Verhoeven one, mm. the more recent one yeah. with, um, this is Katana as mm. uh, Robocop. Yeah. Uh, he, very specifically, they cut to, like, they take the Robocop armor off him mm. and he's a head with some lungs and one hand yeah. attached to a, 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 a piece of wire. Mm. And uh, unlike with Chase, this completely and utterly destroys uh, Murphy. Like, he is distraught at seeing this. Yeah. And uh, that film goes lightly into, well, what does this make me now? And then it kind of peters out for that third act where nothing much really resolves. Mm, yeah. And that's uh, Honestly, that's where that film failed because it, it's not just it wasn't R-rated. Mm. It, it's, it's that it did not reach a concise, uh, if not necessarily conclusion, but really twisty, windy moment of the film to uh, get you really thinking deeply about Murphy's situation. There's there's definitely touches and moments in there. Mm, yeah. But I think what really impressed me about the way it plays out in Genlock is the fact that, A, not all the characters feel the same way about their body. Mm -hmm. And B, there is no real sense that not identifying wholly with your organic form is weird and wrong. Yeah. Because... Honestly, it, I, I feel like I don't really identify as my body. I mean, I, I do and I don't. It's, it's not like if anything changes about it, it doesn't immediately make me worry that I'm not me anymore. It's the envelope. Yeah, it's the, it's the Gundam. <laughs> it's a Fletch Gundam that my consciousness puppets around the world. And sometimes that can cause me problems because... Um, a lot of of the of like anxiety and depression and things like that come from not being able to reconcile what your organic side is doing in terms of chemicals and mm. and physical experiences. So it's not as if it's always an easy thing, um, but it's also not the feeling of terror that I think some 
some stories present it as that if you can't identify with and feel at one with your physical flesh, you're fucked. Oh my God, no, you are not. Also, my brain soul has difficulty sending out the message, your flesh Gundam needs sustenance and rest. Yes, absolutely. Those signals are a little bit interrupted sometimes. Yes. It's a pain. They're put on hold. They're yes. like, we're going to put you it's over like, here. No, 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 no. I'm Got busy. I will pay attention to the needing of food in the AM, my man. When we get to the bit with the copies and uh, Chase is confronted with the fact that he, you know, was copied repeatedly. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Sixth Day, mm. which, again, could have been a really profound movie, uh, but it turned into just uncomplicated action. Yeah. Uh, because in that, he, uh, spoiler warning for The Sixth Day, he runs around trying to stop his... Uh, yeah, evil clone from uh, taking his family and it turns out he's the clone all along because those memories of being him are so ingrained in his brain he can't separate them and, and think of himself as something other yeah so it's like but are you you if you're not the you that you thought you were yes yeah yes you are you are definitely still you um there's another arnold schwarzenegger film total recall where uh, the idea of multiple versions of himself... Terminator. Yeah, uh, is actually handled in a really straightforward way. I'm me, he's him, we have different CPUs, just because we look the same and you people think you can treat us all the same, we're not. <sighs> Nick Stahl goes, wait a minute, remember when I taught you to smile? <sighs> okay, let's reasons? go over this one more time. <laughs> one of the reasons I can't stand... T3 is the almost the entire film is an exploration of but is this the same Terminator no we melted that one this does not help us <laughs> it's like so much raw time in that film was wasted on flipping Arnold having to explain the same thing over and over again to a man who is ostensibly supposed to be intelligent enough to lead the human race out of danger wait 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 Terminator what was that thumbs up supposed to mean? Shh, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> it is against my programming to slap you, but still. <laughs> also, I would break your jaw. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, it also reminded me of the Black Mirror episode, I'll Be Right Back. Um, Donald yes. Gleason is uh, married to... Hayley Atwell, yes. or definitely with Hayley Atwell. Yeah. Uh, you know, he goes off, he gets in a terrible accident, but then she signs up for a new Facebook program mm. type thing. And what it does is it has effectively scanned all of Domhnall Gleeson's interactions online and distilled that down into a digital version of him, which gets put in a body that is modeled exactly on him. So mm. she gets sent this David from AI style robot, only he is an adult, uh, and... It is entirely freaked out by the fact that her dead husband is now back to her. And while he has slightly off mannerisms, he does remember things they've done and he does talk like her husband. She's freaking out, it, which reminds me of Starman, mm -hmm. by the way, which we saw the other day, the uh, John Carpenter film that's unlike any other John Carpenter film and actually feels a bit like Spielberg, yeah. where an alien impersonates Karen Allen's uh, deceased husband and uh, she's left feeling uncanny mm. because even though in, in that, that situation he hasn't taken his her husband's memories it's just more the shock of being reunited with someone yeah, who really want to be this 
person you were with. Yeah, it's like an early level version of that. She is interacting with somebody who looks and sounds exactly Mm. like him, but the behaviour is off enough that she very quickly treats him like a completely separate entity. Mm. Um, I think the difference between the way it's presented in I'll Be Right Back and how it's and the the much warmer less ethically questionable way that it's presented in Genlock is that with I'll be right back it's um a which data by the way file. is a really good episode that it people is, should watch it's fantastic and I don't particularly like black mirror now it, it got really maudlin but and it just became like uh, the best described as a Roomba with a steak knife taped to it yeah but okay right I'm so sorry for interrupting no, you no, no. please continue that's I just okay. wanted to get that out of the way before we moved on to other things <laughs> no, no that's fine and Hayley Atwell's fantastic in she that, is so. amazing yeah they both are the difference is the warmth yeah because in, in I'll Be Right Back the point is that this is a uh, a detached paid for service which scans the internet <laughs> like for, Facebook does uh, residual data on the person that you have lost that person is gone they are recreating them it's like um, I suppose taking the DNA of somebody who has has died and then using them to create uh, a separate entity and kind of different that, that in the first way what you get is uh replication of their mental processes mm. the second way you get a replication of their biological form yeah, if you can okay. put the first into the second you get something approaching you get that something person. approximating them but, but it's still, still not them yeah whereas with genlock the whole point is that you are dealing with a live consciousness even in chase's case it's not that they found him and he was dead but luckily they happened to have all of his neural scans on file mm. and so they used his neural scans completely separate from him as a a conscious being. They digitised his brain as one would a Cardigan's CD. Uh, Yes. (laughs) A bit more of a complex process. Do you want this in Um, MP3 format? (laughs) But the the point being that they are starting, their starting point is him. He is there and very importantly in a position to give consent. Mm. And there is also um, a, a lengthy scene where the new recruits for the uh, program are being introduced and there's no uh there is a degree of misleading going on in terms of the parameters and limits of the program and there are ethical question marks over that although in in season one that's not explored fully but the seeds are dropped but what they don't do is lie to them about what they're going into they don't take their neural patterns without their permission there is a very definite you we have to explain to you what is going to happen and you have to agree to it um because of the way the genlock process works and david tennant talks a lot about um, neuroplasticity and the way the uh, electronic interface works with the the human brain and the neurotransmitters that carry the signals back and forth. Um, and basically, if you're not relaxing into it, it won't work. Um, and a lot of the compatibility exploration is around that. Are you open-minded enough to accept that you can do this, that this can be something that's real? Are you uh, resilient enough to be able to recover from the the process of your neural patterns going into something that is not your physical form and uh, running around that way for a while and then coming back into your body. One of the ideas they talk about that, again, I, I was like, 
wow, that's great. Uh, the the colonel who they're working under, because of course all of this has been funded with military dollars, says that these uh, recruits are all, they have messed up backstories. They have uh, chaotic lives. And uh, Weller, played by David Tennant, his point is, but that's why they're suitable, because they've been through trauma. They've been through messy. They've been through chaos. And they're still here and they're still functioning. That makes them incredibly resilient. That makes them incredibly uh, capable of significant change in a short space of time and that's what we need couple more things that uh, reminded me of uh, chase's situation the sense of uh, loss of identity uh, ties in with the notorious spider-man clone saga from the 90s mm. where uh, peter parker was told you were cloned this is your clone and uh, then you find out that Peter Parker was the clone all along, and he then changes his name to Ben Riley, and then you find out that he wasn't, and he was, and it's back and forth, and, and a, a sense of you know, but but who was the original? But Ben Riley got a life all of his own. Mm. Like he made peace with the fact that he wasn't Peter before this was revealed, and decided to have an existence with all of these uh, memories. Galen Marek. Uh, Star Killer from uh, Force Unleashed ended up dying at the end of um, uh, Force Unleashed, and then is brought back as a clone in Force Unleashed Two, and effectively just being used as a tool by Darth Vader as, as a in, a in a cruel version of this. Mm. Although that does kind of break Star Wars because if you can just clone someone because they've become killed or injured, and then they retain all of their midichlorian attracting force powers. Why didn't Palpatine just go, oh, this one's burnt. Okay, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just brew up another Anakin Skywalker at Camino. I've, I've frankly got credit now. I spent so much there. <laughs> oh, he's overdone. Send him back. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's more just like, oh, well, can we answer these questions? No, cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. No more game there. Okay. And the other, the final thing that I will tie this in and we can move on to the rest of the show uh, is I uh, saw so an article online for a company will now buy your face for $150,000 or something like that. Mm. And uh, it's because they're you know planning and mapping out the human face to put on uh, artificial intelligences at some point in the future and you're effectively licensing your likeness to them. Now, the way that the article framed it, obviously for maximum clickbait, was these fucking mugs are giving out 150 k to anyone who'll give them their face and it's like no they will select one or they will select two people one of each pre-prescribed gender maybe if they're like you know super progressive there'll be one person male one person female and one person gender fluid Mm. um and they will pay them 150k each, but they're not just going to give any old hobo who wanders in. Mm. Uh, you know, that, that son of a bitch took my pants is not getting 150k out of these guys. Well, they don't want yeah. someone haggard. But, well, honestly, why spend 450,000 on different gender presentations when you've got when young Lance Henriksen? One face that's androgynous and gender fluid enough that it could apply mm. anywhere. Yeah. Uh, either way, there's uh, something unsettling about that, uh, and I'm definitely not looking forward to what YouTube's going to be like when robots become more human. Mm. How will the algorithm deal with cruelty to artificial technology? Try 
frankly, we've already seen what happens when YouTube is populated by humans who are trying to be more and more robot-like every day. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, uh, end of comparisons uh, for, uh, to Chase. But like, that just... By the end of this eight-episode season, there's still so much more to explore with him. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, and yeah, that was the other thing. The comparison of the, the being able to use his face was when Chase was confronted with an army of effectively corrupted clones of this original uh, brain that he ends up having to fight a broken-down version of his original self. Yeah. And... You know, potentially there will be countless other versions of him out there. Effectively, they have co-modified this man Mm. in a a, a dark fashion. Yeah. And then there's sort of these questions about, well, what about... Is it continuity of memory that makes you who you are? Um, And again, they, they don't necessarily come up with the answers for these debates, but there is very much a sense of you are who you are. Nobody else gets to tell you who you are. And that, I think, is a really strong message that frankly anything that's going to give people in this day and age and the chaos that we're having to deal with in the outside world not Mm. just political but technological and emotional and meteorological it would appear as well anything that that can kind of give people something to ground themselves in Mm. is good now, one thing that surprised me about Genlock was uh, that uh, we get separated, as effectively we're following Chase, from Miranda really early on. Mm. After the initial, this is who I am in episode two, uh, she's you know she's basically your, your analog pilot who pilots the old style of mech suits with just effectively just walking Metal Gear tanks. And she's kind of sidelined for most of the rest of the season. She comes back occasionally to have a conversation with him, mm. but really it's about him getting to know his new friends as these new recruits all arrive from around the world, Overwatch style. Mm, yeah, which honestly, I kind of liked that because it, again, if you're looking at questions of identity and who people are, it underlines that your uh, your relationships don't define you either. The, the experiences that you have with family that you've lost and partners that you're not with anymore, they contribute to who you are, but they are not... Uh, a fundamental this is the thing I cling to and this is how I know I'm me because the more of that is external to yourself the more can be taken away and leave you without support struts now the uh, new pilots are actually best exemplified a couple of episodes in to their uh, training there's there's sort of a lot of back and forthy stuff and I was starting to think this is kind of like if they'd done Pacific Rim Uprising with any interest in personality mm. yeah yeah um and you know by the end I was like this is like imagine if Pacific Rim Uprising was even half as good even a quarter or an eighth as good as this mm. They have to be kids because after you get beyond a certain age, you kind of, you age out of the program. Yeah, the the way Weller explains it. And for the record, by the way, and I know part of this is because of the the throwaway modern major general line, but I was like, Mordin, is that you? Yeah. (laughs) And then that made me think David Tennant would make a really good Mordin Solus. But anyway, that's an aside. Um... Yeah, he explains that after a certain age, you're your organic brain stops regenerating neurotransmitters. Um, 
I, I did. Your heart dies. <laughs> I, I did try to sort of um, dig up the science on this to find out how accurate it is. It is true that as you get older, your brain is not as elastic as it used to be. Um, so as we get older and stop making sense. Uh, uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, it it is not, however, impossible. A lot, of, you know, the, there are uh, myths knocking around about once you're past a certain age, you can't learn, for example, new languages, which is entirely untrue. That's it's bollocks. not as easy because you're. Uh, well, when you're younger, your brain is a sponge. Well, when you're young, okay, when you're little, your brain is continually producing new. Uh, cells and neurons because it's got so much that it's got to learn and take in Mm. and it's got to adapt to the fact that your body is changing and it's a simple fact that as you get older and you stop growing and you stop changing shape and you stop um, you know various other things the uh, the need for your brain to be so Uh, constantly regenerating itself is not there. So it slows down. It doesn't cease entirely, but it does slow down. And it does mean that it it takes more conscious effort to teach yourself to do new things. Um, But it's not entirely impossible. And they do challenge this a little bit towards the end. The example that they give of somebody who was compatible, but they decided that he was too old and the risk was too great, was uh, is a character called Leon, who is tasked with training the recruits to begin with but then as the story progresses and things get a bit more intense and they're actually they actually come under attack he goes into a holon to help protect them and that is a great risk to himself the danger is not in that they won't be able to control the mech the danger is that they then won't have the uh, elasticity to get back into their own organic brain um, and and that is effectively what happens to him. That's how the the cliffhanger at the end of the series sits. It reminded me of the penalties incurred by uh, drifting on your own yeah. in Pacific yeah. Rim. And that, again, I, I think the way they set up the parameters and the limits of, of this tech is really clever because it's, in a way, it's a power fantasy. It's you're in this big machine and technically it could be a case of nothing can hurt you. You can go out there into the world and do whatever you want with impunity. You mean in a Jaeger we could fight the hurricane. Exactly, but they create these really clever parameters to make sure that there is still a sense of threat, that there is still a sense of limit. Uh, Part of it is to do with time. So the idea being that when you go into the Holon, you've actually downloaded your neural patterns and your consciousness is now in the machine, which means that your organic body is sustained by life support, but you're not in there. And if you stay out of there too long, they call it uptime, you have a limit to your uptime. Mm. And if you don't get back into your body, what will happen is your uh, your neural patterns will have spent so long adapting themselves to the shape and framework of the mech that they won't be able to refit themselves back into your organic body. And that's fundamentally what happens with Chase towards the end of the, the, the series. That really is his physical death. It's not when his plane crashes, it's when he spends so long in the suit that he then, in fact, he makes the, the conscious decision to stay in the suit in order to achieve a particular goal, but that means he then cannot return to his organic body. And because of how that's tied in with the uh, the storyline with Nemesis, who is the uh, Union stolen 
corrupted original. Corrupted original of Julian Chase's thought processes. Who's like this spiderish evil. Yeah, Nick. my note says he looked like uh, Starscream. <laughs> or possibly Soundwave. It's the big red eye. Nemesis reminded me of Epion, the uh, second uh, Gundam which Zex Marquis piloted in uh, Mobile Suit Gundam Wing after the Tall Geese. Oh, technically, sorry, Tall Geese had a Tall Geese 2, so it was the third mech he piloted. Nemesis as a character actually also reminded me a lot of the... It's, I suppose it's a trope by now, but Zuko and Red Lantern... Razor. Razor. And Great show. Uh, Kylo Ren, the uh, the overwhelmingly scarlet imagery that is used to present these young, damaged, angry men. Mm. He's not an overwhelming element of this first series. He might possibly end up being more so in in later ones. He did have a bit of a lawnmower man vibe about him as well, mm. like the the space that they exist in, which is similar to the drift did remind me of that very early 90s crap film. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, it did kind of... As bad as the framing was and as bad as every decision was in that film, it l- laid down the idea of a physical computer space in a sort of a visually uh, arresting in the day yeah. fashion. But one of the things that's implied by Chase not being able to get back into his body is that cut off from his organic self he runs the risk of becoming like Julian, who mm. is, who's been nemesis all this time. Julian is Chase's first name. Yeah. Um, and the, that, uh, that not having that existence in the real world is what caused him to go bad. But it's made very clear to him in very short order that that's not the case at all, that it's not about the fact that he had no organic interaction. It's the fact that he had no interaction at all. Mm. It's the fact that I think the way they describe him is alone, cut off and tortured. Yeah, he's a baby uh, being, being forced through an experiment. Exactly. And the, the, uh, the, what Chase has access to that Julian did not is the connection with his teammates that is still entirely there regardless of whether or not he has an organic physical meat hand that he can hold for somebody and that again reinforces this whole you are not your physical shape you are your consciousness but the episode which really just crystallized these characters for me they take part in an mmo uh, style online game what was it called again I don't think it has a name. The Oasis or something. <laughs> they just they just refer to it as gaming. The Cammy gets a lot of teasing from them because she's the youngest of the team. She's only 17. And she is remarkably well played by Maisie Williams. Yeah. Her Scottish accent was very impressive. Yeah. And she is uh she's introduced as something of a tech whiz, but they kind of pick up on the fact that she spends most of her time in this gaming world. Mm. If she's not She's she's the one who most wants to be either in the Holon or in the uh, digital space where they all get to connect with each other in a way that is not physical. Or she wants to be in this gaming world. She seems to want to test herself a lot. As yeah. Well. yeah, she's she's very. Um, I was getting a real Penny Parker vibe off her. Mm-hmm. She's very high tech, but she's also very into the idea of all things being connected and all people being connected together. And there's a there's a moment when. 
they're talk the older ones are talking about the fact that they're spending too much time together and they need some downtime apart from each other and Cammy just d- it does not get with this concept at all. The idea mm. that they would want to be apart from each other is totally alien to yeah. her. As soon as they get into the game world, uh, one or two of them are like, well, i got to go off and do some stuff, do some hanging out and listen to some music. And she's like, no, we can do stuff together. Mm. And her residual game version is a little white bunny in uh, like Monster Hunter. Like, Monster Hunter has like cat people, I think. Mm. Okay. Little cats dressed in armor and uh, uh, like wizard robes and uh, engineering gear. And she even says at one do you want to go monster hunting? And it's like, okay, yeah, we get it, cool. But her like sign, her symbol is a bunny to the point where when her mech gets like double upgraded, she ends up with this effectively tall, very agile bunny with digitigrade legs, which go like a like a dog's leg uh, back and, and 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 forward rather than with the knees poking the other way like a human um, by design and by choice. And she's got these great big bunny ears as well. So their challenge was basically making her not this anime stereotype. Mm. But the the embracing of the the modification of the the mechs is very much an extension of Cammy's character, and it, it, it emphasises her youth, her plasticity, her willingness to adapt. Um, she, but also that she does have this very strong image of herself when she creates the bunny holon and somebody kind of is amused by the shape that she's made she's like it me, me. <laughs> and it, i just i love that the the notion that you can have such a strong projection of who you are that you can recreate that and never question it. That's, you know, there, there is no, oh, but I'm not sure if I'm allowed to present myself yeah. as a bunny. No, you know what? I'm a fucking bunny. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the character of Yasmin is Iranian, and we find out later that she accidentally outed her parents as intellectuals. Mm. So she's living with that shit. Uh, she wears a hijab in the uh, uh, MMO, and doesn't in real life. And, and when questioned about it, she's like, yep, that's just how I roll, which mm. was a nice little uh, way of, of getting through to her. She's one of the more serious members of the group. Yeah. Well, she's a, um, a transplant from the union side. Yeah. Wella recruited her for the program from prison, effectively. Mm. And she's one of the people who puts the biggest question mark over what the enemy is. Because yeah. when the, the original Battle of New York happens in the first episode... My assumption was that the Union, which it, the idea of the bad guys being the Union, by the way, did make it feel a little bit Firefly, mm-hmm. I thought. You've got to watch um, out for them Union boys. <laughs> and they, uh, they are tech. They are robots. At least that's what we see. Technically they are superior these... tech, because the, human, the, uh, the people fighting against them are outgunned and exactly. outmanned. So you've got these huge spider-like war of the worlds almost, mm. um, uh, mechanical beings advancing on New York, spreading before them a cloud of uh, nanotechnology that is intended to absorb and... Um, Take over. Take over anything encounters, whether, I mean, the, to a degree, it seems like whether that's mechanical or organic, it can still possess it and change it. This is what everyone was afraid the Soviets would be doing in the uh, Cold War, that they would change us to thinking like Soviets. 
Well, it's not like the... Sidestep that one, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, <laughs> well, luckily the Soviets didn't have super advanced computer tech or, or, or not even particularly advanced tech, just yeah. no rules. All they had to do was buy Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Job done. Um, but the uh, this, just to, to talk about the animation style for a moment, the there is a difference in how the human characters are animated and how the things like the vehicles move... And then again, in how the uh, the mechanical elements of the show, the robots and the the union, are are done. It's I don't know how to describe it. Even somebody who has more understanding of the technology of animation could do a better job than me. It's shinier. You can see the curves more. Things glow, and the crystalline uh, animation that they do on this nano cloud mm. was. I was just captivated by it it's so beautiful and deadly and it looks like uh, a smoke cloud or a virus or something but i couldn't look away it was just so sparkly <laughs> there's something about the fact that that what the humans seem to be fighting is very insectoid or arachnid mm. the um uh, everything has more legs than it feels like it should yeah it makes it feel like, okay, so we're clomping along here with our two legs and two arms, mm. and we are out, out-armed out at yeah. this point. Yeah, out-armed, out-legged. Um, one other thing that my, my one criticism, and this only really became an issue very, very early on, it faded almost totally um, as we progressed, but they use an animated shaky cam in the action scenes, which made me feel really queasy. I would also say that first episode uh, is kind of bogged down by uh, um, like Independence Day style um, dogfighting and action sequences. And you're like, mm. if you are more into human interaction uh, and drama in your and entertainment, am. and I am, you could kind of switch off during that crucial first 25 minutes when yeah. they really need to hook you. Mm. It well, Like I say, it wasn't until that last shot where the two of them were standing in front of each other and everything else faded away that I was like, okay, no, this is going to be about people, yeah. not action mm, yeah like it is it's definitely uses action as a spice but it's not that's not its sole focus mm, yeah but i i can kind of understand why because um this is this is a discussion that's been sort of fairly prominent recently because of the whole you know marvel films are theme park rides they don't have uh, deep character interaction in them it is entirely possible for them to have both just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't there and i would say to that that you're not looking hard enough but anyway that's completely beside the point um but the the, the we are undeserving of such characters uh, you're right we should have ugly movies um but the um uh, using a predominantly action-oriented first episode is a way of not alienating who you are well aware your primary demographic is going to be, the, the bulk of your audience is going mm. to be. Mm. And there are uh, certain choices that have been made in terms of uh, the casting that I think feeds into that specifically. There is a, a, a character who is Japanese who's played by uh, Koichi Yamadera. Now, oh my God, this guy has form in this genre. Mm -hmm. I mean, he played Jubei in Ninja Scroll. He was spiking Cowboy Bebop. He's been in Ghost in the Shell and Neon Genesis and Evangelion. He is like the epitome of what this show uh, should appeal to. By the way, when uh, Sharon said he was Jubei and Spike, I went, ah! 
and hearts appeared in my eyes. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but he's one thing I really like about him. Actually, just are we are we going into character mm-hmm. discussion now? Okay, so one of the things I really liked about him was that he's um, physically he's the biggest of them. He's very. He's the I big guy. I want to say he is. <laughs> no, I want to say clunky. There's there's something about him he's that's a bit very analog. yeah. Um, he's the most resistant to the idea of of connecting digitally. His holon, uh, the the final form in the season is based on a Robo Shogun, which was a, a manga he loved when he was a kid. Yeah. So he's very much like his idea of the perfect thing to pilot is something way out of the past for yeah, him. Yeah, absolutely. But the fact that uh, his the line he has when he sees it to Cammy is ten year old me is very happy right now. <laughs> um, and I I just love that. Which idea. Which is a really good she's... way of making sure he doesn't grow up too fast. Absolutely. No, that's what I was going to say. She's Sorry, given him away. No, no, no. No, it's fine. Um, but she's given him a way to connect with that younger version of himself, which is what they need. That youth, that flexibility, that um, that ability to see the possibilities that as you get older, you kind of go, well, we definitely couldn't do that. Well, why not? And and she's helping him to reconnect with that. And there's all these tiny little things about him that that feed into kind of the visual storytelling of the world. The, the, he plays the guitar and he when they're disappearing off into battle because the thing the the uh, base is under siege he comes back for the guitar <laughs> so it's like this is a world where he's not easily going to be re- able to replace that guitar and it's something that's really important to him a real fundamental part of who he is it they use the guitar to demonstrate how um when they're in the uh, digital environment that they can go into as part of the genlock program where they can connect with each other. The idea is that they share sensory feedback and they show this. They show how this works in battle by you're over here, you can see this. Somebody way over here who can't see it needs to shoot at it. They can use your eyes to help them target the thing that they need to aim at. Um, and also, like as with the drift in Pacific Rim, to enable them to fight together better because the thoughts can flow between them more naturally. But then they also use it in a very... Uh, non-battle sense to show that uh, Valentina has picked up some of the guitar playing memories. I love that bit. She's, that was such a moment. They mutter, uh, I have memories of uh, playing guitar on the roof, which is something from um, Kazu's past. Mm. And it's now Val's. Yeah, yeah. It's something that they have between them. And he's the most private of them and the most sort of freaked out, I suppose, by the idea of of thoughts and feelings Mm. going backwards and forwards between them. Again, it's all very... It feels like very early days, but that being the basis of of uh, an exploration of that theme through that character was an idea that I really loved. And the other thing about Kazoo that I liked is that he always speaks Japanese. He never speaks English. With subtitles. Um, And this is is something that I've, I've... seen it talked about in uh, the context of tabloid articles complaining about multicultural schools specifically. 
and the idea that if you have too many people speaking non-English languages in a school, it will confuse the poor English-speaking children who won't understand what anybody's saying and it will impair their understanding of their own language and we should be forcing all of these kids to all speak English all the time and, oh my God, that's ridiculous. And honestly, the future that I kind of see as moving more towards and the evidence is there in what happens in the playgrounds where that is what's the case that is the case in those schools is there is a blended language between the kids where everybody speaks what they can speak nasdaq <laughs> get some Milocco plus into those kids everybody speaks what they speak they can speak best and honestly most of these kids their command of english is pretty damn good because it kind of has to be um but they <laughs> It is the nature of the way the human mind works that you can generally understand other languages better than you can speak them. So if everybody's in the position where they are able to communicate in the language and manner that they know best and can trust that the people around them will understand that at least well enough to to get a back and forth with them... That's that's kind of all you need. You don't need everybody to be able to speak the same language as long as everyone has enough understanding and grasp and is actually listening to each other's languages to be able to communicate with each other. My hope would be that uh, since everyone will have a phone and everyone will probably end up having an earpiece and some kind of eye display, mm. uh, that when you talk to somebody who's Japanese, uh, you just key it to Japanese translation. And then when they say... Whatever they're saying, it goes and just gives you the subtitles on the screen. It's like you have the option to also play that back in a, a helpful English voice, mm. thus allowing everyone to speak in their own language and have that translated. Like a babelfish. Provided that the idea is we're trying to understand each other rather than I'm going to take offence because I have misunderstood you. Yeah, exactly. And there, there needs to be that understanding that what you interpret somebody as saying isn't always going to be what they were actually saying. Allow for some leeway and further exploration of what you think they've said because your babelfish may not always be spot on. Mm. But honestly, two people speaking English to each other can misunderstand each other fundamentally because they're not listening properly and they're not grasping yeah. what's actually being said. Otherwise, the phrase, you are, would not exist. Exactly. And one of the biggest causes of uh, conflict between people is somebody who is feeling incredibly misunderstood and their response to that is not to try and uh, connect with the person and enhance that understanding but is in fact to lash out in a defensive way and vice versa somebody who misinterprets something that somebody says and their response is immediately to kick out at them rather than well okay let's clarify what what did you mean by that because it came across to me this way is that what you intended that tech I just spoke about before is already technically on phones. You can uh, get somebody to say something in a language into your phone. If the phone, speci- well, if, if that app is specifically keyed to that language, it will repeat it back in English. It's that's totally going to be something that happens if we survive the next twenty years. Uh, in, uh, incorporating into ourselves, the phone will just be the really quick, easy way of interfacing with this stuff. That our little palm pal. Uh, and just all of the tech that's whizzing around in our brains and eyeballs and noses and ears and things will just be uh, connected to that. Mm. 
We're not going back to a time before phones unless the internet dies. Indeed. And if the internet dies, we got other problems. absolute favourite characters, Val or Valentina, uh, is gender fluid and we find this out during this MMO bit which again should have come earlier because it's a really great way of getting you totally hooked on these characters. Um, they present as, it, do they, yeah, they present as female outside. The way they phrase it is that they have, right they, now by the way, they currently have a female body mm-hmm. that they might consider changing at some point. That they have, in fact, changed at least identity back and forth for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, in the game space, they present as male and call themselves Val. Mm-hmm. And in the in meat space, they present as female and call themselves Valentina. And the idea behind... Another reason why the Wachowskis would be like, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Loving well, that. The, the idea behind their identity is that they are... Uh, they are sometimes male, sometimes female, can be whatever they feel is right for that time and place. What I really loved, there was the uh, phrase they used, which is to feel the pressure to change yeah. and then to feel it again to go back. So it reminds me of uh, um, the South Park episode, uh, the series of episodes where uh, Mr. Garrison uh, became a woman, then went back to being a man and going back and forth. And it's Matt and Trace sneering at body identity uh, politics and going, well, I'm a white heterosexual male, so I, I can't understand the least bit of that. It just feels like they're trying to get attention. It was the opposite of that shitty fucking take mm. on gender politics. Uh, and Val's kind of the cool one mm. out of all the group vowels. They are, they totally are and and I think as well because they come from a position of, of having more political involvement than the rest of them, mm. um, they were a, a Russian agent at one point in the past and the, I think the way they put it when they're exploring their backstory is uh, there were social pressures mm. to leave the Russian uh, intelligence network. Mm-hmm. And I think the, one, of the, one of the key elements of uh, Valentina and the, the way it's written is Val, Val slash Entina, um, which is really neat. Unfortunately, there's not an easy way to convey that in audio. But the, the casting, at the point of casting, they, uh, the, the team had wanted an actress uh, from Orphan Black to play the role and she declined and said, no, you need somebody who is non-binary to play this role. And she so, pulled what I will now call an Ed Scrain. Ed Scrain. <laughs> um, so Although Ed Scrain dodged a bullet with it, uh, not being in Hellboy. Yeah. Uh, Rise of the Blood Queen. Uh, so instead Hellboy, they cast uh, Asia Kate Dillon from Orange is the New Black who 
is non-binary, identifies as they. I don't know that their gender presentation is quite the same as Valentina's. I think uh, Asia Kate Dillon Oh, is... shit. John Wick 3. I know Asia Kate Dillon. Oh, okay. They were in John Wick 3 and Lauren talked about them. Ah, okay. Right. Fair enough. As a particularly fine representation. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but but this is sort of another example of, uh, of where a, a casting choice means that an actor can bring more to a role than the original creators and writers are capable of doing so because they have a different perspective uh, and an understanding of what that presents that the the writers couldn't possibly have. And that flexibility to go back and forward between creator and performer is another thing that I think really gives Genlock something that it would not have otherwise had that there are elements of the actors in the characters that creates a wider sense of what's coming across than it would be from two top-down writers who didn't employ the consultation or understanding or comprehension of anybody else. No, I'm not talking about anyone specific, but anyway, moving on. Um, Are you talking about that? (laughs) The uh, Game of Thrones guys. Oh, those fuckers, because there's so many people who do those, that yeah. do, do that. Yeah. Um, but also, I think the presenting, uh, the, the gender fluid element of uh, Valentina's character, also, although it's not said explicitly, it gives another reason why they would be most appropriate for the Genlock programme, because that sense of fluidity and plasticity and being able to Mm. be one person sometimes and a different person some other times but still fundamentally be confident in the fact that you are you that having your outside shape change does not throw you into a crisis of identity and a a panic about who you actually are Mm. is one of the essential criteria for being compatible with this program and one of the things that uh, that Weller refers to when he's explaining how the recruits were chosen, is that they have looked for people who are psychologically fit. And that is fit in the Darwinian sense. The uh, the idea that fitness does not mean that you are the fastest, that you are the strongest, that you are the best at cardio. What it means is that you are the most appropriate for the circumstances in which you find yourself. And that's something that cannot be judged externally. And this is what the people who who have their whole alpha male concepts and, um, you know, oh, evolutionary... Uh, alpha male, by the way, the, the idea from a now disproved survey on captive wolves. Yeah, not even, not even, like, externally disproved. The guy who presented the theory originally has said, this is all bunkum, we were looking at bad data. Would you knock it off with this alpha male... Bullshit. Absolutely. It hasn't made the world better. No, it hasn't. And it's wrong. (laughs) Stop clinging to facts that you haven't looked at new information on. Yeah, guys, facts don't care about your feelings. (laughs) Ooh, turn that sword against them. Indeed. Um, But yeah, so the, the, um, the determination about whether or not what you have is most appropriate for your circumstances, again, is is something that, that you can determine from the inside and, and your uh, identity can feed into that and be reinforced by that rather than uh, fragmented. Okay, I'm going to play you that really 
great bit of characterization for where they go into the ether, which is kind of like uh, the Matrix, or I suppose a better comparison would be the Oasis from Ready Player One. Or, now that I think about it, Oz from Summer Wars, where you get to choose your digital self. So let's go game together or something. Improve the communication. Or some shite. Come on! <sighs> All right. Kazoo, do you really need to look tougher? You have a hijab? In here, but not out there. Is it so unusual? No, not at all. It's, it's just weird seeing you with long hair. I think she looks lovely. Did you used to wear it this way? <laughs> oh, you look smashing. I have to admit, it may be time to use Val again. No, well, yes, I will now, but it's not role-playing. Kazoo, do you not know, pal? Ah, sorry, Val. You should say it's not my place. Yet, it's perfectly fine. My body is physically female at present, but I'm starting to think, maybe soon, a change. Think gender fluid. You've shifted before? A few times now. Sometimes, not now. Perhaps again soon. I sense the pressure coming on again in a way I haven't in a long time. Kazu just asked, what were you born as? You'll never know. Oh, what is taking Chase so long? Really? You can make yourself look like anything you imagine, and you go with a hoodie. What can I say? You gotta be me. Are we gaming or what? Aye, we got several options, you may fancy. We could go sci-fi. Are you joking? We do this all day long. Pirates? Anyone want to sail the high seas looking for booty? Fancy boys. Could go monster hunting. Come on, somebody pick something. I have a sudden desire to hit the club. You dafties. Yes? I may retire. Perhaps another time. You got me. There was an arresting sequence where Callie overclocks herself. She gets trapped and has the head of her Gundam pulled off and tossed down the street, which makes her scream and traumatizes her. And when she's doing training the next day, she uh, gets beaten down and starts to feel that again. So she ups her aggression levels, her reaction levels, her response time, lowers her fear counter, and effectively like puts herself in rage mode. Mm. And... She succeeds, but she's burning super hard on that and, and eventually starts to uh, attack uh, Kazu repeatedly and has to be uh, wrenched off him. Mm. It's uh, You describe PTSD itself as being overclocked without being able to control it so that your awareness and re- responses are uh, like super sensitive yeah. in a way that uh, is detrimental to your being able to survive in the regular world. Absolutely. What you, what you are effectively in the state of, and this is something that Cammy puts herself into voluntarily, and there's a great moment where uh, Weller kind of 
is deciding whether or not to override it and put the defaults back on and bring her down. He decides not to and to let her experience that for a little while. And then eventually he does. And then they have a conversation about the fact that you can't, that's not something that you can sustain. What that is, is the the natural trauma response uh, for the human body is to go into fight or flight mode. And when you've been traumatized to the point where that sequence of going into that in order to get through the trauma and then come back down from it is broken or is is uh overstretched to the point where it can't come back into its normal frame uh, you get stuck in fight or flight all the time and it's not um because this is something that uh the the idea of someone who is in trauma and and having a a like a panic attack and th- something like that is often interpreted as well we'll know it because they'll go completely off the charts and they'll be lashing out at everybody all the time and they they'll be um you know responding in a very very violent way that's not always the case sometimes they freeze sometimes it's um it's a, just a, a state of being hyper alert and exhausted because you can't sustain that for long. Um, and I, I really like the way they presented this with a, a technical explanation that to me, and it obviously it may be in part because I've, I've studied this in a fair amount of detail, but it translated very easily onto uh, the human neural framework and, and how the brain actually works in those circumstances. That's, that's basically what your uh, your body and your nervous system are doing is overclocking you because it thinks it needs to do that for you mm. to survive. Because it thinks if it turns that off and allows you to relax, you will die. It's a survival mechanism, pure and simple. And you can't live in survival constantly because you can't restore, you can't rejuvenate, you can't, um, you can't heal. Around about episode six, uh, when the shit hits the fan, they get invaded in uh, in their home, effectively in their home base, um, by by the Union, this giant spider craft like something out of a Halos. The kids have to flee. Their mentor, Dr. Weller, who I don't think we've really talked about um, I- I- enough, there was... Uh, there's an amazing performance here from uh, David Tennant, as always. I've never seen him not do something fantastic. Mm. Now that I think about it, yeah, David Tennant's never been rubbish. Mm. And this He is was even great as Barty Crouch Jr., even if it was a little bit super theatrical. Hello, father! Mm. <laughs> and this is, this is probably the most doctor I've ever seen him in a non-doctor role. There's a robot in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Nickelodeon cartoon who sound, or who is David Tennant and sounds very Doctor oh. Who eccentric. But yeah, there's definitely inflections of it there. Oh, and uh, as Scrooge McDuck as well, he's uh, in the new DuckTales. Oh, I just love him. Anyway, um, so he's been their mentor and there have been times when he starts to push them too hard to see what they can do. And, and, and throughout the first few uh, episodes, you're starting to wonder, is he maybe less concerned with them mm. and more concerned with... 
uh, achievement yeah. that can be uh, accomplished with them. Uh, but uh, he effectively takes himself out. He explodes to uh, protect the uh, tech and uh, sends a message to them uh, wherein he says something along the lines of I love you 3000 uh, holographically. And I believe he, he kind of lives on as this sort of robot butler named Caliban. Um, uh, but it's, it's just David Tennant's voice. And I do wonder how much he'll be able to come back in, in a world with digitized brains. Yeah. Well, that's because I did wonder whether he'd like actually transferred his consciousness yeah. digitally into Caliban. I didn't just wonder. I figured that's the yeah. outcome in this story, considering the context. But at the moment, certainly, it is more that Caliban contains some of his memories and knowledge yeah. and, and um, not necessarily the neural patterns, just recorded yeah. information. There's room to move on that. But the important yeah. thing was here, this is the part in the uh, uh, hero's journey or indeed unified hero's journey where their mentor is taken away, which is always a point which I, I which gels with me. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I really like about um, his what he presents as well is because there's this question mark of whether his logical and scientific approach to things is really entirely good there's when they're discussing the process of copying chase's uh, neural patterns the the situation that results in the discrepancy between chaser and nemesis the upshot of that discussion is after that happened we stopped copying mm. and that for me was kind of the epitome of where forgiveness and assessing somebody else's behavior and whether or not you can move forward with them after they've done something which is terrible the first thing you have to look at is are they still doing that thing because if they're still doing that thing they're not sorry kind of like blizzard exactly <laughs> and all of their all of their rationalization and all of their their justification and um and doubling down about their errors of judgment that that's less forgivable for me if they like the, the to ability, err is to be human exactly to keep fucking doing it is to be a dick well yeah <laughs> that's a really good way of summing it up actually but to, yeah to fuck up to make errors of judgment to course correct that is what we do and that is absolutely fundamental for uh, for progress because we can't change if we don't make mistakes but you have to be open to the fact that those mistakes are mistakes if his if his response in that scene had been to justify why they did the copying and to say why it's really important to do it even in the face of this terrible consequence that for me would have put his character on the side of nope this is a bad dude and you want to get far away from it bad science yeah, yeah. and obviously that's a, again an oversimplification and you don't necessarily divide the world up into bad dudes and good dudes there's there's all sorts of gradations of dudes in between but fundamentally if someone has done something which causes harm and terrible consequences are they still doing it hmm. and the aftermath of this episode episode seven we uh we ended up watching this all in one day i was expecting to spin it out over a couple of days but we watched a chunk of it early on and because it's on i was on blu-ray it just plays out like one long three hour 19 minute movie with uh eight chapters hmm. 
And when I got to, uh, we, we watched the last two uh, in the evening of that day, and I realized, oh shit, there's only two left. I really, really, really want more of this. That's when I realized <laughs> I was totally on board, on, and uh, that, you know, even though we started doing this thing as a job, it didn't end up feeling like work because it mm. was so engaging. This is um, much like Sing Street. The, I, well, although Sing Street we'd already seen and knew we liked. Uh, there it's sometimes we'll do a commission and we're like, okay, we'll do this thing and then we'll get into it. It helps folks if it's early days Mm. rather than, oh, you should do RWBY. Friggin' 80 episodes. This thing that has 90 episodes. When I hear episode seven and there are only uh, uh, this and one more left, and I feel, oh, I could really do with more of that, Mm. that's not gonna happen. If I hear episode seven and it's like, how many are left? 72. Also, <laughs> that that is exacerbated if it's a case of there are 80 episodes and it gets really good around episode 16. Yeah. Uh-huh. Although somebody did say I, I tuned out after episode one, I'm like, ah, damn, because like that that's a, it's a good episode, but like I said, it's it's an episode of two halves. The first bit is sort of getting to know our uh, lead characters, specifically uh, Miranda and Chase, and um, then the ne- the second half is all this big battle scene, which I could lose a lot of people, mm. and. You know, in all honesty, I didn't really want more of that. I started to go, oh, this is really pretty good during the MMO episode. Mm. And then I started to think, I don't want to stop around about uh, number seven. Yeah. So that was intriguing. And we'll see. See, the other thing is, we've been asked to do Gargoyles season two again. Mm. Doing this kind of show where we talk about season one and we establish the characters and the concepts, we can get a lot of mileage out of just, like, here is this world. Yeah. Doing subsequent seasons, the shows would get shorter because we've got less to establish. Mm. It's more just moving the pieces around. Yeah, and also one of the elements of... That's why we didn't really plan on doing a Stranger Things two, three. Yeah. Like we did them by mistake, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to have to. We will be finishing off BoJack, mm. but we've held back for quite a while because we, we wanted yeah, some closure. We'll, and yeah, we want to know how it's going to finish. We first. keep trying to finish Community so that we can do a show on on, on seasons four, five, and six, but it's not as good after season three and we just stopped when we got to season four it's like well that's great we watched all through seasons one through three in preparation for finishing this thing and we can't get past the first episodes of season four because it's so not community Mm. um and we're gonna finish the good place at some point but it will just be like an epilogue Mm. because we did a whole bunch of good place one of the one of the difficulties for us i think with doing long form stuff is that the, the elements of film analysis that, that we really enjoy, or at least I don't want to speak for Alex, but the, that I really enjoy, is the, the taking of, by necessity, symbolised or abbreviated concepts because you're working within a two to two and a half hour window, because you're working in a small contained universe. Space, yeah. And if you want to explore philosophical ideas, you kind of have to give hints and suggestions and and representations and then let your audience take that and run with it. And the taking it and running with it is the part that I really enjoy, looking at use of a colour and expanding on what that might mean, looking at the way 
uh, particular characters' dialogue with each other and how we can expand and interpret that dialogue into something much, much bigger. Now, when you get into long-form storytelling and you're into something that's got two, three, four and onward seasons... All of those philosophical seeds and ideas that they may have laid down early on in the show, they will then explore in a more thorough way themselves within the text or at mm. least the, the subtext of the show. And if that's Giving us case, less work, effectively, well, and more a, to look at. less to do, because fundamentally, really, all you're doing then is, is repeating what they've said on the show, in which case, if it's good, I'll just say go watch the show, they explain it quite adequately. And if it's bad, why would I be recommending it to anybody? Mm. That's why I found it very difficult to talk about Welcome to Marwen, because it explains its subtext. Mm. It literally tells you why this is happening and what such and such symbolises, leaving us going, well... that, that was a film, yeah. definitely. And I think, again... It, review, it, 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 uh, it analyses itself. Yeah, absolutely. And this is another reason why I think, you know, when people ask why we don't do dramas and things like that very often, it's because if, if what they're trying to say is very upfront and right there in what's happening in the movie... I have troubles with my father. There's a lot less to... to work with really you're then into discussions of well how well was this presented visually Mm. how well was this uh, represented in the script what was the camera framing how did that enhance this and that's great but that's the technical side of things and that's not really what I connect with it's different if it's a drama that's really spoken to us uh, especially earlier in our lives and actually informed upon our behaviours we've got Rain Man coming up with um, the Two Shrinks pod and that's something that I watched from a very young age, probably too young for Rain Man, but definitely helped me to understand human interactions more mm, yeah. and when those human interactions were going very, very wrong. Mm, indeed. But the but yes, yeah, so the the um a drama that we can extrapolate from and apply to external situations we will get more out of than one which is just representing what it is about. Yeah. And I do wonder, like, how many people are actually going to hear this speech because Genlock is quite an acquired taste and a lot of people won't have listened all this way into an episode on a TV show they didn't see. Yeah, that's fine. We might have to repeat ourselves on this particular uh, (laughs) matter at some point later, folks. uh, Bear with us on that. So uh, for this final act, after they've uh, lost everything, they end up uh, having to take down this uh, corrupted version of the original Chase, the original, original Chase, uh, who is kind of a a tragic figure. Back in the um, uh, Spider-Man clone saga, and I didn't even read this fucking thing. It's it's too big. It went on for years and a million books. Uh, There was a failed Peter Parker clone called Kane, who was this sort of monstrous outcast. I mean, there's elements of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein there. It's the twisted, warped brother that uh, doesn't succeed when the uh, you know beautiful, talented brother does manage to uh, uh, go. It's uh, Danny DeVito and twins. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or Kane. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> so this rather on-the-nose character is called Kane, and uh, uh, he ends up kind of tragic and, and uh, uh, trying to make amends for the terrible things he's done. But uh, it reminded me of um, uh, th- this version of Julian. And this Julian spider mech thing is extremely intimidating and difficult to fight, and they it can anticipate their every move, so... 
uh, you know, unifying the uh, themes that have been uh, explored and uh, touched on throughout the uh, season so far, they have to uh, mind share and effectively drift together in order to move like each other and fox him. And the only way they can actually beat him in the very end is to combine all five together to become this supreme being Power Rangers style, mm. which is a nice little nod to... A, it's a nice little nod to Voltron and Power Rangers and all of that, but like that always symbolised the team coming together and actually becoming something bigger than themselves. Yeah. Which I love. And to do this, Chase has to let go of his physical form. He uh, uh, He's filled with anxiety over you know what will I become if I'm not connected to me anymore and, and that sort of you know, goes into what Sharon was saying about being more than just the envelope mm, yeah but there's a moment really quite early on where uh, Weller talks to them about feeling powerless and I realised it was the all you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you speech from Fellowship as he was saying the words, it's a reworded version of that. But it's a message that needs to be put out again and again and again mm. to remind us that feeling powerless is a symptom of living in a complex environment. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the sense that when you live in a world that you don't understand... Because it's too big, because we have since very early on in our evolution had to contend with the comprehension that the world is bigger than we, our little human brain actually has the space to fit. Um, and that can result in numbness, not necessarily anger and violence and aggression, although that is often an outpouring of the extreme versions of that. But that the it is it is even alluded to by Weller that the the dominant forces, which in their case is the union, um, and in our case has multiple faces and multiple names, and most of them are running off Russian money, it would appear. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, are Subtext. what they want is not necessarily to destroy the world it's not even necessarily to rule the world it is simply to make the world numb enough that they can do what they want with impunity and know that very few people are actually going to fight back um, and what Weller explains to them and it's a it's a wonderful speech and again this was one of the things that made me go oh wow I really love this show this is great is that Yes, they've created this program, the Genlock uh, system, to, like in Pacific Rim, give people a sense that they can fight the hurricane back. Fundamentally, what he's trying to encourage in them is not to feel overwhelmed when you're faced with a world that you can't fix all of. Because what you can do is fix the bit where you stand. You can make a connection with somebody else who's a little bit further away and then you fix the bit around where you both stand. And then you connect with more people and then you fix the bit around where you all stand. And eventually, if the network gets to be wide enough and strong enough, it has a reach that is big enough that you can perceive a difference in the whole. 
Nicely done. This is what Lucy Weatherfield said in uh, Secret Rooms. That afternoon, we found Joanna in floods of tears, huddled around a corner of the house. I picked my sister up and tried to hold her, but she was limp and shaking. What's wrong, darling? Um, I ain't cried this hard over nothing since that time it was something. It's too big. Nobody can fix it. Then why are you trying to hide something so big? What are you going to use to cover it? Pennsylvania? I don't... I don't think the world can get any better. At this, she buried her face in shame. And my own increased rapidly at the realization that I allowed my sister to fall this far. To get this low. While I chatted in the sun with Lucy. Why can't it get better, sweetheart? Because... Everything is broken now. I expected a speech about how things weren't as bad as they seemed, and my personal least favorite platitude, never mind. Grown-ups saying stuff like that can cram it up their asses. I will mind plenty, thank you very much. But Lucy didn't say that at all. In fact, she went the opposite route. You aren't wrong there, Joe. This world is in serious trouble. Things really are kind of broken down, and and there's not just a big mess to clear up, it's more like 6,000 big messes. 6,000 problems. Right. And nobody, not one person, not a dozen people, not even a hundred people could clear up this big mess on their own, right? Not a hundred, no. But these messes aren't all in one place, are they? They're everywhere we look. A different one up north, a different one down south. Folks in countries you never heard of are in trouble. Yeah. If what's outside scares the hell out of you, you focus on what's inside. That's something you can do. Am I right in my estimation there? We just... We just fixed this place? Yeah. Let others fix the rest. When we're given the chance to help out, we'll do just that. But we're no help to anyone, least of all ourselves, if we get crushed under the weight of worrying about everything. Nobody ever told you to fix everything. So you don't have to. Alright. Now me and Abigail are fetching water from the creek for the Eastern Carrot Patch. We're late, and we're going to get in trouble, so we have to go do that. You can stay here and think about what you can do to help if you like, or... Can I help you? Why, sure you can. You can carry my pail. And with that, dragging her arm over her eyes and smiling, Joanna grabbed Lucy's bucket and walked with us to the creek. And the audio drama New Century Secret Rooms Definitive Edition is available on Bandcamp, priced at $9. And there's just about enough time left to thank our $15 sponsors who get credit every episode. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Angus Lee, 
Marty Hui, David Sheely, Kevin Vahey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finn Barnicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. There was one tiny little visual thing. I don't know if you want to try and snip this and fit it in somewhere else or get rid of it entirely because it's really small. Um, But it's the difference in the aesthetics in terms of how the mechs on the Union side are presented and the Hollons, the Genlock Hollons. Mm -hmm. And this is not an uncommon colour palette for them to use, but the fact that the Union mechs are all kind of this military camouflage colour greys and browns and things that blend in and the genlock holons although their colours get adapted later on are fundamentally apple tech white Mm. it creates like a fairly stark line between military control and civilian exploration and that feeds into a decision that they make at the end of the show where the obviously they've been up to this point funded and overseen by uh, the polity military side mm. but they make the choice to go with um Artasa mm-hmm. which feels more like a more like well possibly because of the way it sounds it feels more like NASA a a, a civilian organization which is about pushing the envelope and and learning new things and not necessarily applying them to how we can fight better Uh, and they make the choice to stick with that at the end rather than going back into the auspices of the military it's notable that the polity also fight with that kind of same camouflage battleship grey that the sort of very slow ass walking mechs. And, oh yeah, exactly. Uh, ships yeah, and things. yeah. No, that's uh, the point. But that the uh, the apple white mechs are also very much color coded to their individual pilots, who yes. whose self expression comes out, especially as they evolve. You get a bunny one, a Robo Shogun one, one that looks kind of like Farrah in Overwatch, only in sort of this. Uh, amber colouring, and just generally celebrating the individual strengths of each of these soldiers, making them the opposite of Pacific Rim Uprising, where it's like, you will all be generic and fight together for our glorious Chinese leaders. I mean, what? (laughs) Although they're flight suits, I don't know if you noticed, the little Mm -hmm. um, spine connectors at the back Mm -hmm. made them all look like um, the Pacific Rim pilots very much, yes. Yep. So once again, yeah, I wish that this had been Pacific Rim Uprising. It would have been a far better spiritual succession than the actual sequel. And you could edit down this three hours, 20 minutes into a tighter two-hour movie. It, it has the same structure as, as, as that. It also reminded me a little bit of um, The New Mutants. 
Yeah. As in just, you know, these young people from all over the world all brought together. Like similarly X-Men, but the, the New Mutants are always more neurotic mm. than uh, the X-Men. Absolutely. Well, the, the X-Men always, because fundamentally they're all grown-ups. Yeah. Um, there's always this sense of they are actually relatively integrated with the mm. authoritarian structure, whereas the New Mutants were always very much... Uh, set apart from mm. it, even if they weren't directly opposed to it. So I suppose it just comes down to the fact that when the X-Men were originally written as teenagers, it was the 60s, so they felt less authentic to the, how they do today, and the New Mutants were the 80s, and Generation X were the 90s, mm. and they have that same kind of, you know, we're from all over the place, and some of our powers are baffling. Yeah, yeah. New Mutants is probably my era. I, I didn't get my head around Gen X quite as much, although I did love those those stories hmm. and those characters. And considering what today's kids are up against, Marvel would be absolutely insane not to make the core of their X-Men franchise teenagers trying to help the world. And a lot of other teenagers mixed in with that, just trying to not die. So thank you once again very much to our commissioner for this episode, David Schuttenhelm, who has been very understanding and patient. We will see you next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
have you done to yours, Cammy? It's a giant bunny rabbit mech suit. 